Last episode on alcohol, I covered Queen Puabi's beer drinking straws. I'd never heard of Queen Puabi before and said that I'd like to do an episode on her tomb and Bob's your uncle, here we are. Tomb discoveries give us an incredible insight into what people across history consider to be the best of the best in terms of craftsmanship. Who doesn't want to hear about gold stuff? Don't worry though, I'll be covering stuff that isn't just gold. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. The 1920s gave us jazz, flappers and prohibition, but it also gave us some magical archaeological discoveries, which were discovered by Sir Leonard Woolley and his team. The site was first excavated in the 1850s, but it was Woolley and his team that found the treasures that we're going to cover. Although all was once a coastal city near the mouth of the Euphrates on the Persian Gulf, the coastline has moved and the city is now well inland, about 10 miles from Nazaria in modern-day Iraq. All was in ancient Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia doesn't just cover Iraq, it was across the whole Middle East, which includes parts of Southwest Asia and lands around the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. It's the part of the Fertile Crescent, which you may have heard of, which is also known as the Cradle of Civilization, where some of the earliest known human civilizations on Earth started smashing out some pretty important inventions, like the concept of time, maths, maps, writing, and the actual fucking wheel. The word Mesopotamia is formed from the ancient words meso, meaning between or in the middle of, and potamus, meaning river. So yes, we've established that they're absolute ballers, but let's get down to business and talk about these tombs. Woolley uncovered and examined more than 2,000 burials dating from around 2550 BCE. Along with these, he also uncovered an ancient city, complete with public buildings, private houses and temples. The most prominent feature on the site is the ziggurat, which was a temple tower. It was built by Ernamu, who is best known for creating the first legal code found on a cuneiform tablet dating to around 2100 BCE. The laws on this code included, if the wife of a man followed after another man and he slept with her, they shall slay that woman, but the male shall be set free. Brilliant. If a man commits kidnapping, he is to be imprisoned and pay 15 shekels of silver. That's shekels, not schmeckles. This is not a cartoon. Anyway, it was started by Ernamu and finished by his son Shulgi and then rebuilt by Nabo- <laughs> Nabonidus, Nabon- yeah, Nabonidus 1,500 years later. And Ur Ziggurat remains the best preserved temple tower in Iraq. The temple itself is to honour the moon god Nana, whose statue would have stood atop the Ziggurat. Woolley and his team also found loads of normal houses, which shows us the footprint of the city. We're not talking straight lines and right angles. We're talking delightfully higgledy-piggledy streets, back alleys and wonky houses. I'm romanticising really, as the city that spills out organically with no sewer system to speak of must have been quite gopping to be in. The floor of the houses were one metre lower than the street level apparently, to avoid dirt and detritus from the street getting into the house. I don't really understand this conclusion, because surely if the street was full of crap and your floor was one metre lower, as soon as you open the door you're going to have a wave of rubbish falling into your living room if they had such a thing. Though obviously archaeologists certainly know more about what they're talking about than me. The houses themselves had rounded corners and Woolley suggested this would stop pack mules snagging on the corners of the buildings. 
There were houses found on the outside of the town walls too, highlighting that urban sprawl was not just what happened in medieval towns and cities. Let's get to the royal tombs. You heard that right. Time for the shiny things. So as I mentioned earlier, there were 2,000 burials found in the town cemetery, but 660 were royal burials. 16 of those were fancy royal burials. How do we know they were royal? Because of all the lavish grave goods found with them, of course. One of the most famous of these graves was that of Queen Puabi, which as far as I can see was a previously unknown queen of the region. She was around 40 years old when she died and was pretty small at just five foot tall, though apparently at the time the average height was five foot two, so she wouldn't have stood out like she would today. One of the interesting things about Puabi is that in early Mesopotamia, women were usually described in relation to their husband, like Ningle, wife of Agar. The fact that she is identified without a husband shows that she was a ruler in her own right. Yes, queen! So what was found in that tomb of hers? The answer is fucking loads. Grave goods included decorated ostrich eggshell cups, cosmetic kits including coal eyeliner, gorgeous little shell containers containing blue copper oxide used for eyeshadow, tweezers, beer straws and some of the most beautiful jewellery I have ever seen. Poabi's body was adorned with 14 pounds of jewellery. That is literally a stone. Thank the moon god she was lying down. She had this massive headdress made of 30 feet of gold ribbon. Right, I want to try and illustrate this to you as best as I can. Think of Princess Leia's hair. Now make it twice as big. Now extend the volume going out of those side bits to cover the top of the head and you're about there. It's like someone popped on one of those Lego hair bits. If you're still not with me, it's basically the same as the No Capes lady from The Incredibles. No Capes! The gold ribbon was wrapped around and round what is assumed was a wig due to the sheer volume of hair. That's not all. This wasn't some basic headwear here. She also had, well, I suppose you'd call it a headdress, that was placed around the forehead. It was made of gold, willow and poplar leaves that hung down, layered on top of each other. Don't forget to add that comb at the back that was topped with seven flowers, also made of gold. As well as the incredible headwear, she also wore a beaded cloak made of 16,000 bees that is just beautiful. I thought we said no capes. She had shitloads of other jewellery as well, but I won't go into it anymore for fear that you're going to be like, all right, yeah, we get it, she liked jewellery. It's definitely worth a Google search, though, if it's your thing. If you play Minecraft, you'll have heard of Lapis Lazuli. I mean, you probably have if you're a grown-up anyway, but I'm not. Lapis Lazuli is a precious blue stone that has been used in antiquity for making beautiful objects for thousands of years. When I tell you that they found a statue in the tomb that became titled The Ram in the Thicket, you're probably thinking of something made of water pottery that's crude and brown, maybe with some eyes drawn on. Wrong. The Ram in the Thicket, which is actually a goat, is one of the most unreal pieces of ancient art I have ever seen. It's just over 45 centimetres tall, and the goat is standing on its little goat feet, perched up against a bush looking for something to eat. It's made of gold, lapis lazuli, copper and white shell. It's got a tube sticking out of the top of its shoulders, suggesting that it was used as a support for something. How long must this have taken to make? There's no machines, no shortcuts, just pure human-powered creativity. Ugh, the stuff humans can create when we're not fucking each other over, am I right? None of the precious stones found were from the local area and would have been imported from the area of modern-day Afghanistan and Iran, showing that a thriving trade network was in place. So what did Wally have to say about all of these treasures? We are doing marvellously well. I'm sick to death of getting out gold headdresses, but the other things are wonderful. In the excavations, Woolley found human sacrifices, which is otherwise an unknown thing in this region. 
26 sacrifice attendants were found inside Puabi's tomb and a further 74 in a pit outside. It's argued about whether or not the outside pit is linked to Puabi's tomb at all, but either way it's pretty grim. There is evidence on some of the studied remains that they were clubbed on the back of the head with a blunt object, so whether they went willingly was up for debate. A lot of the remains were women, and a lot of them were also adorned with these lavish headdresses. Imagine you've done your family proud and got a job attending the actual queen and she dies and you're like 19 and it's like, oh, look at you, off you go to attend her in the afterlife. Well, that is assuming that these attendants were for her by choice and weren't slaves, which I suppose is also a possibility. A lot of them were found with cups near them, which could have held a lethal concoction of sadness and been scooped out of a big vat that was also found in the tomb. It wasn't just personal attendants either that were found. There were musicians, grooms and guards found. What a horrible pit of fear this must have been for the four poor people going in. I don't know whether it would have been better for them to know their fate or not. There's so much more to say about Puabi, but I've got other tunes to cover. So have a little Google if the mood strikes you. Now, I know that Tutankhamun is probably the most famous tomb discovery of all time. You're like, oh, fucking hell, she's going to tell us what we already know. Lame probs. But to be honest, this tomb discovery was the very thing that sparked my love of history. I was at primary school when I first heard about it at the age of eight. And my God, I literally thought this is the most incredible and magical thing I have ever heard. That was it. When I wanted to grow up, I was going to be a historian or an archaeologist. And I spent quite a lot of time on my drive in the front of my house, picking up fossils and putting them in my Jurassic Park lunchbox. I know, I know, that's geology. But whatever, I thought I was being an archaeologist. Now, I never quite managed to do either of those things because I am shit at remembering dates. But that does not mean that I haven't carried a passion for history over the past 20-ish years. It's this exact reason that King Tut's tomb is going to get its own section because I do what I want. Oh, hello. We're still in the 1920s. 1922 to be specific. Howard Carter is probably one of the most famous archaeologists on earth and it was this moustache-sporting, top-hat-wearing Englishman that found it. He didn't just stumble upon it. His team were looking for six years before he finally hit the jackpot. The season that the tomb was found was almost cancelled due to lack of funding, but Carter managed to convince Lord Carnarvon, a rich archaeological hobbyist that was funding it, one more season to search. It was a hot day. Obviously, it's Egypt and 12-year-old Hussein Abdel Razoul was on his twice-daily trip to bring water to the English archaeologists and his team of workers. He had strapped the jars of water to his donkey with rope and set off across the sands to deliver the water to the parched workers. When he arrived, he started to remove the jars from his donkey and started his usual routine of unloading the jars into the sand. The bottom of the jars were pointed, so to stop them falling over and to keep them out of the sun, he started to dig with his hands, scooping the hot sand out of his way. His hand brushes something solid, so he tilts his head for a moment and digs some more, then some more, until he uncovers a flat stone that looks purposefully sculpted. Hamdullah, he says softly to himself, before he gets up and runs to tell the workers. Twelve-year-old Hussein was responsible for finding the very first step that led to the tomb of Tutankhamun. There's actually a picture of this hero wearing one of the necklaces found in the tomb, and he does look like a right sweetie. Carter and his team dug down, and after a further 15 steps found a sealed doorway that had remained closed for 3,000 years since 1325 BCE. The passageway behind the door had been filled with limestone chips. There was evidence of ancient grave robbing with a hole dug through the upper left section of the passageway, and Carter concluded it had been raided twice. 
Once, a few years after his burial, before the sealed door and passageway had been filled, and again shortly after it had been filled, as the robbers could only escape with small objects that they could fit through this human-sized tunnel. The passageway was nearly eight metres long, and it took a day to clear it. At the end, they found a second door, with similar signs of tampering, and it looked like the first door. To illustrate this, I'm going to directly quote Carter, because as if I can say it better than him. With trembling hands, I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. Darkness and blank space as far as the eye-intesting rod could reach showed that whatever lay beyond was empty and not filled like the passage we had just cleared. Candle tests were applied as a precaution against possible foul gases, and then, widening the hole a little, I inserted the candle and peered in. Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn and Callender standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict. At first I could see nothing the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker, but presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, "'Can you see anything?' It was all I could do to get out the words, "'Yes.' wonderful things. From what I can figure out, the tomb contains two chambers and it was absolutely full to the brim with treasures. All in all, 5,000 objects were found, including statues, gold jewellery, Tutankhamun's mummy, chariots, model boats, jars, chairs, clothing and paintings. Get this though, his tomb held a space dagger. Okay, it wasn't made in space, or was it? Probably not. The iron in the blade contained 10.8% nickel and 0.58% cobalt, which could only have been made from a meteorite. How insane is that? Make sure I have my space dagger with me on the way to the afterlife. I want Osiris to think I'm cool as fuck. Also found was one of the world's oldest board games. Senate or Passing has been played in Egypt for 1800 years prior to Tutankhamun's death. It was played by people of all class levels. No, the exact rules have been lost to time. It's believed to have something to do with life and death. It even may have been an early version of backgammon. You know what is also going to make Osiris think I'm a baller? Solid gold sandals, bitch, get crafting. These sandals were placed on the dead pharaoh's feet before he was wrapped in strips of linen. They resemble leather and plant sandals Tutankhamun would have worn in life to pop to the market. Okay, probs walking around the palace or whatever. The job of the sandal bearer to a pharaoh was one of the most important positions in ancient Egyptian society. As well as carrying his footwear, they would also wash the royal's feet. So, who was King Tut? He was actually born Tutankhamun, which means the living image of Aten. He changed it to Tutankhamun, living in the image of Amun, to show his devotion to the deity. He became king at age nine and was, fair and the, was the youngest pharaoh ever to rule ancient Egypt. He bore two children who were unfortunately stillborn due to his family line being quite inbred. Both were interred with him in his tomb. His parents were brother and sister, though some people dispute this, saying that his mother is not known, though some believe it's Nefertiti. So what are the theories surrounding the boy king's death? There are definitely differing opinions. Some say he died in battle, some say he died while out hunting ostriches, others say he died of malaria, seeing as traces of it were found in his body. He had bone disease in his club foot, and others say he died because he was inbred, which had caused enough health problems to seal his early demise. Time for some spooky shit. Among the world's most famous curses is the curse of the pharaoh, also known as King Tut's curse. 
Ever since King Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Kings, stories circulated that those who dared violate the boy's king's final resting place faced a terrible curse. It's claimed that many people associated with opening the tomb fell soon victim to the curse, dying under mysterious circumstances, ranging from Lord Carnarvon himself to archaeologists and security guards. Why are ancient curses so able to capture the imagination? On the 16th of April 1939, two trumpets from the tomb were played in a BBC Live radio broadcast from Cairo Museum, which reached an estimated 150 million listeners. Some, influenced by the myth of Tutankhamun's curse, have claimed that the trumpets have the power to summon war. They suggest that it was the 1939 broadcast which caused Britain to enter the Second World War. Thanks, BBC. Talking of the BBC, if you want to hear more about the objects found in the tomb, there's a really good BBC History Extra podcast episode called Treasures of Tutankhamun, which interviews the exhibition curator, Tarek Al-Awadi. Don't know about you, but the only thing I knew about the terracotta soldiers before this episode research is that they're old, Chinese and made of plant pots. That's just about it. Let's start from the beginning. In the 3rd century BCE, Hannibal crosses the Alps on elephants and the board game Go is invented in China, which is believed to be the oldest board game continuously played until the present day. The terracotta army belonged to the first emperor of China, King Shi Huang, who ruled between 259 and 210 BCE. He is considered to be a good ruler and he oversaw great advances in politics, economy and culture, including the introduction of a standard written script, a system of canals and roads, advances in metallurgy, standardised weights and measures, and the early Great Wall. However, he's also known for his cruelty. He ordered the killings of scholars whose ideas he opposed, boo, and showed little regard for the life of the people who built stuff for him, including his burial complex. Numerous labourers and artisans lost their lives during its construction, while others were apparently killed in order to preserve the secrecy of the tomb's location and the treasures buried within. He came to the throne at the age of 13 and he commissioned the construction of his tomb soon after. What a shame for a 13-year-old kid worrying about his tomb rather than playing pogs. But in less than 30 years, a fucking massive funerary space was created that covers approximately 56 kilometres squared. 56 kilometres squared, which is the size of Manhattan in New York, which seems greedy, but, you know, you do you. It included 8,000 terracotta soldiers, along with numerous horses and chariots, a pyramid mound marking the emperor's tomb, remains of a palace, offices, storehouses and stables. In addition to the large pit containing 6,000 soldiers, a second pit was found with cavalry and infantry units, and a third containing high-ranking officers and chariots. A fourth pit remained empty, suggesting that the burial pit was left unfinished at the time the emperor died. Forty years just wasn't long enough for all that stuff to be made. In 1974, some farmers were thirsty, so started to dig a well. You know the drill. They stumbled upon this big-ass fucking city of terracotta boys. In addition to the warriors themselves, they were holding 40,000 bronze weapons, including battle axes, crossbows and spears, and some of them were still incredibly sharp. Each soldier has distinct facial features, but it's been calculated, though, that they were created using at least 10 different facial-shaped moulds and then further customised once they came out of the mould. I find it really interesting to think about why they bothered to do this, but I suppose it made them more lifelike. No expense spared when they're to accompany the emperor to the afterlife. The warriors were accompanied by 130 bronze chariots, 120 terracotta chariot horses and 150 cavalry horses. 
Another pit was full of sets of armour made from stone plates rather than the usual lacquered leather. Stone was thought to offer spiritual protection against spooky ghosts, and the army's role was to protect the emperor in their afterlife from demons and the vengeful ghosts of all the men he had killed. The emperor intended to continue ruling for eternity from his tomb, so to keep him amused he also had an army of entertainers. There were terracotta acrobats, musicians and strongmen. The soldiers were originally painted with bright colours which are now faded, but traces of paint are still visible on some. Even 40 years after its discovery, less than 1% of Emperor Kin's tomb has been excavated. Initial fears of damaging the corpse and the artefacts within the tomb later gave way to concerns about the potential safety hazards involved in excavation. According to an account by the 1st century BCE Chinese historian Simu Qian, entitled The Grand Scribe's Records, mercury screens were inlaid in the floor of Kin's burial chamber to simulate local rivers running through his tomb. It is believed that mercury gave immortality. The emperor's early death at the age of 40 was probably hastened by taking immortality pills made by poisonous mercury. Get me some sort of spacesuit and give me a spade because I want to get in there now. A team led by Chinese archaeologist Duan Qingbo tested 4,000 samples from the earthen burial mound for mercury. All came back highly positive. Given such historical and chemical evidence, debate continues over whether to excavate the tomb at all and what methods should be used to best protect its contents as well as the people working at the site. Tomb discoveries will continue to excite us because it's a glittery little window to another world frozen in time. Maybe one day I'll dig a well and stumble across the lost city of Atlantis. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it. To get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. This week has been a bit of a crazy time for the podcast because I had a tweet go viral on Twitter and my listens kicked off. I ended up on the history podcast charts in 17 countries, which is unbelievable. I hope some of you will stick around because as much as I enjoy screaming into the void, it is good when people listen. Five-star reviews this week. Here we go. Northern Block says, really enjoyed the first episode. I love hearing the facts peppered into these great stories. Really appreciate that the episodes are not long enough to get boring. Good clarity, good editing. I'll be sharing with others. Thanks, Northern Block. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.